1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Services Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well and for the moment, at least outside the red zone in Sydney.
2: I am well. Thanks very much, Giles. Um, and I trust uh, all our listeners are also well. And um, as more about politics, it seems to me, than anything else in the uh, world of electricity Gas and decarbonisation this week. Yes, well, back to the
1: future or something like that. Um, unfortunately, um, that's probably the wrong expression. It's probably back to the past or, 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 or something. Barnaby Joyce has rejoined, uh, well, he's re-emerged as leader of the Nationals. Um, the Nationals seem to be particularly emboldened, as we saw last week, um, with shouting down any idea of having net zero emissions. I'm still not quite clear whether that's actually a um, a philosophy based around climate denial or just a negotiating tactic to get more money from farmers but David you had a brilliant idea this week given the um, eruptions and the movements in Canberra and this um, and, um, and and Barnaby Joyce and uh, all the others talking about um, about the need to think about regions we thought we you thought you'd go out and, and talk to a farmer sounds like a really good idea
2: yeah uh, Yes, that's right uh, and so we had a chance to talk to uh, uh, one of the leaders in the um, carbon uh, impact of carbon climate change on farming and um, it's a good interview and it, it points out uh, that there's over 35,000 farmers have actually signed up to climate change uh, initiatives of one sort or another and in researching it, I make the point that I said again on the podcast, but I want to make it twice there 's about a quarter of a million people that work in agriculture in Australia, and the value of agricultural exports at fifty billion say is roughly equivalent to the or twenty percent less than the value of coal exports, which are sixty billion but and coal employs fifty thousand people. but we hear all about the uh, harm that uh, that might be done to to coal if uh, if we ban it. Uh, but we don't hear anything at all, it seems to me, even from, especially from the National Party, about all the damage that um, uh, the Australian Bureau of Agricultural Resources has already statistically determined is happening to agriculture, where farm incomes uh, are down about 15%, more or less, already as a result of climate change, and it's going to get worse.
1: Let's have a listen to your interview with Anika Mosworth, who's the, um, from the Farmers for Climate Action.
2: Hi, it's my uh, pleasure to welcome Annika Molesworth, um, uh, scientist and and farmer to uh, to the podcast. Annika, I think you're also um, uh, a Farmers for Climate Action founding director uh, on the on the Climate and Energy Task Force of the National Farmers Federation, uh, and as I said, a farmer yourself. Um, thanks very much for joining the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me on, David.
2: Um, I guess. Can you tell me uh, maybe there's a lot of so many to- topics to talk about with, with farming and climate change and I could start by mentioning that I think there's about a quarter of a million people employed in agriculture and agricultural exports are about, you know, $50 billion and there's about 50,000 people employed in coal mining and exports are about $60 billion, So they're actually very comparable in terms of value, but there's a lot more people in farming. But I think, and I think Abare has sort of kind of concluded that over the past decade, climate change has clearly been shown as a negative for farming incomes. I guess, but I might start by just asking you, what's, what have you been doing recently in the area of farming and climate change? Have, have you been out talking to people or is, uh, how do farmers feel about the whole topic?
3: Yes, well, I most certainly do spend a lot of time talking with farmers about climate change. So I am also an author, and I've been writing about this topic, and in doing so, interviewing farmers, not only here in Australia, but all around the world. And not only farmers, but people all along the food system, because we're all very much involved in this food system, which is under threat from a changing climate. So Climate change impacts farmers in a whole variety of ways in that we're seeing more frequent and intense uh, extreme weather events like uh, droughts, bushfires, floods, dust storms. We're seeing changes in precipitation patterns, increasing temperatures, changes in distribution and prevalence of pests and diseases. And all of these factors influence what a farmer can produce, where they can produce it, how they can produce it. So it impacts the daily activities, it impacts productivity, it impacts profitability from the farming sector. Um, We also experience challenges with climate change, you know, exacerbating mental health issues in rural communities. So it's not just an environmental issue, it's not just an economic issue, it's very much a social issue as well. Uh, and this is the the area that I work in.
2: So I guess I grew up in in in, in a country town, um, and my experience has always been that country people, by and large, are, are, are relatively conservative. Let's be honest about it. They don't uh, they adapt no faster than they need to to new ideas. And I think it's also statistically true that the uh, Rural workforce is older than the urban workforce, which you know gets a bit more set in your ways. How does this message about climate change go across broadly?
3: Yeah, well farmers definitely um, accept that the, the climate is changing. Um, that's for sure. I mean in Australia we live in one of the most highly variable climates in the world um, and climate change just makes it all the more challenging for farmers. And over the last few years with the droughts, with the floods, with the bushfires, um, it's quite, you know, it's something you can't ignore when you step out the front door and you see your landscape being blown up in the dust storms or seeing bushfires ripping across your paddock, burning your animals alive. And so I think we've really moved past the point of, you know, do clim- do farmers believe in climate science? Um, definitely all the farmers that I speak and work with do. Uh, Farmers for Climate Action, we have around 35,000 members. Um, We see organizations like the National Farmers Federation representing 80,000 farmers calling for net zero emissions by 2050. The meat and livestock sector calling for net zero emissions by 2030. So I would say the agricultural sector is one of the most progressive sectors when it comes to climate change and not only implementing practices in the ground, on the ground, you know, within farming businesses, but actually calling for better leadership on this issue from policymakers.
2: I'll get back to the leadership issue uh, a bit further on. I guess when I compare sort of industries, if I, I, I used coal mine as the example out the front because it's in the newspapers nearly every day now, but it's a very organised industry. There's a, only a few coal mine owners and there's the uh, coal mine workers, you know, the CFMEU that are very sort of outspoken, I guess just generally leading into this topic of politics, and, I, and it's not all I want to talk about, do you feel that farmers are sufficiently uh, of one mind and organised to actually get their views across? It doesn't seem that that they actually achieve very much.
3: Ah, well, I mean, of course no sector is going to be of complete unified voice and mind. The agricultural sector is incredibly diverse here in Australia, and that's what makes it such a fascinating and exciting industry to be involved with. In terms of talking about climate change and getting our views across, I think there's been a phenomenal effort being done in especially the last five years in that we've really seen a change in the public conversation and communication from the farming sector. I mean, we've had you know organizations like farming, Farmers for Climate Action um, form and grow incredibly quickly. And this organization is bringing scientists out to food producing regions so farmers understand the changes that are occurring on the land. These events that we run are almost booked out, you know, <laughs> um, all of them um, when, we do, when we do run them. We're also working very closely to help equip farmers to share their stories in that how to communicate what they're seeing on the land, what changes they want to see in place to help them adapt, to help them reduce on-farm emissions. Uh, And we're also working very closely with industry bodies and policy makers to make sure that those higher level strategies are put in place so that we can move effectively towards you know, a decarbonised world and a a climate-safe world.
2: Uh, I I want to continue on this, but just briefly, what industry bodies uh, are the key ones to keep an eye on here?
3: Well, there's a whole range of bodies within the agricultural sector, whether you're looking at, you know, pigs and pork, grains, cotton, rice. Uh, The major one, the national one, is the National Farmers' Federation, Um, But I also think the meat and livestock sector, MLA, they're doing incredible things with research on how to reduce emissions, methane particularly, from ruminant animals. Um, They're setting really ambitious uh, carbon targets. Um, And I think that goes to show that this is such an exciting place to be involved with because farmers are in a very interesting position when it comes to climate change in that we are a contributor to the problem, we are one of the most vulnerable and exposed industries to the impacts of climate change, and we are one of the key players in the solutions.
2: Yes, so I think, uh, broadly speaking, about 12% of Australia's emissions uh, come from uh, farming and land clearing is a big topic historically. And, you know, a number of these issues are quite divisive uh, we'll no doubt get back to the problems but I also wanted to look a little bit at the opportunities which uh, you know you'd excuse me I'm a city boy these days seem to fall into three areas different forms of cropping carbon farming and I guess lease payments for uh, you know uh, having wind and solar right on on your farm and each of these seems to be contentious to some uh, degree or another I guess what about carbon fire, farming what uh, do you is there a position on that? How do you see that as an opportunity?
3: Yeah so carbon plays an incredibly important role in this topic of climate change because obviously we are putting too much carbon into the atmosphere which is destabilizing the climate. We need to bring those emissions you know those gases, that carbon back down to where it belongs in the soil, in the vegetation. We also need to be pre- preventing more carbon being released. So in terms of preventing more carbon being released and looking after our soil uh, practices like um, zero or um, no yeah, till tillage of crops, um, that slows down carbon mineralization in the soil. So that reduces the amount of carbon dioxide that's being released on. Um, Another obvious one is, you know, reducing vegetation removal, especially of, you know, old growth forests, um, looking after peatlands, you know, those high carbon storage areas. And we also need to be looking at ways to actually bring that carbon back into the landscape. And that's by, you know, vegetation plantings, um, looking after the soil health, making sure that there's, you know, healthy soil there. And this also then flows on to the productive capacity of a farming business. because if you've got a good, healthy ecosystem, that's the foundation for your farming business.
2: I, I get that. but on the other hand, if, if, if I'm a farmer and I can cut down a few trees and get a plow over it or run some cattle over over the grassland that's there, why' I want it, what's my incentive not to do that?
3: Uh, because farmers also very much care and respect for their homes and so um, I don't think a farmer is you know inherently evil and wanting to chop down (laughs) trees. and No I don't
2: think they're inherently evil it's not a question of that it's a question of making money uh, 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 that's all and I mean I guess there's been as I understand it some concept that if you don't cut down a tree you should get paid uh, for doing so uh, sort of thing I just uh, I just wondered if there's a way of thinking about that clearly you know that that where you can and, and also i guess i see the measurement if you're planting trees you know and then you get paid for it and then they all die I, i'm not trying to be uh, i'm just a financial analyst who's i guess seen a lot of ideas come and go and trying to understand what what is regarded as the best way to think about it at the moment
3: yeah exactly and i think that's it's a really important and emerging area of how do we help farmers financially to look after the ecosystem and the ecosystem services, which are part of their landscape. Um, and I think this flows into broader conversations and very important conversations about what prices people are paying, consumers are paying for their food and fibre, for, for that produce that farmers are you know, delivering to us. Because so often, you know, we flick on the television, we see advertisements of, you know, prices are down, down, down in our supermarkets, we're encouraged as a society to expect and want the cheapest possible food and produce. And if farmers are not being compensated, you know, fairly and properly to help look after their landscape to, uh, you know, Install new practices and innovations, technologies to ins- install, you know, water efficiency, water saving technologies um, to conserve areas of old growth trees, then it becomes very difficult. And so it's definitely not, okay, this is an issue or a problem for the farming community to solve. This is a society wide problem which we all need to solve.
2: Yes. Uh... I hear that, but it doesn't sound like to me that there is like a scheme or something like when I get to talking about electricity, I can talk about renewable energy credits and stuff like that. You know, there's a clear pathway to develop a renewable energy, but it doesn't seem to me there's a clear financial pathway for farmers for uh, uh, to uh, have carbon conscious uh, or carbon farming practices. You know, there's not a, a clear scheme that that. You could easily point to at the moment
3: uh, the carbon market's definitely um yeah evolving at the moment in the agricultural sector um and i'm not heavily involved with it so i'm not the, the right person to be speaking to about cl- uh, carbon markets and um what schemes are actually out there and available for farmers at the moment but um yeah it's definitely a very interesting and important area
2: and what about, I mean, an obvious area to talk about is water. Broadly speaking, in regards to climate change, is it expected to make more or less water available? Because when I speak to climate scientists, it seems to me that their confidence about uh, the impact of warming on rainfall patterns is, is not as high as it is in some other areas. And uh, they say that.
3: Right, yeah. And so all of these things, um, it's very hard to sort of paint a broad brush of what climate change means everywhere to every sector. And so we really need to hone in locally, like what is happening in local regions. Um, so in some parts of Australia, it will become drier. We will see shifting rainfall patterns from summer to winter rains or vice versa. In other parts, um, there won't be so much of a reduction in rainfall, but there might be changes in the intensity of when it falls. Uh, so we very much have to look at, yes, local and regional scales and not you know, national or global um, scales when it comes to this in my region, in far Western New South Wales, uh, by 2050, it's sort of projected that we'll have around 30% less rainfall for this region. Um, and so that's a huge concern for me as, you know... 30%, a,
2: 30% of nothing, still not very much, is it, really? I mean, <laughs> don't, you don't yeah. get much rain out there at the best of times, it seems to me, or is that a um, bit harsh? Yeah.
3: Well, we are naturally a semi-arid environment out here and that means a 30% reduction in rainfall has huge implications for our landscape and our farming business because we are naturally a dry ecosystem, i um, very vulnerable to changing weather patterns, um, very vulnerable to, uh, you know, the adversities that come with a reduction in rainfall like that. And by 2050, I'll be the average age of an, of an Australian farmer, and that concerns me greatly because I don't think we'll be able to operate, you know, as a, a farm that we have in the past under those conditions that are projected.
2: No I think that's uh, probably right and uh, I guess um, well so what about cropping and uh, types of crops and I mean you can change farming croppings or you can and when I say farm products it's not just crops of course. Um, Do you think that climate change has any general implications of the sorts of farming uh, products that should be produced? Uh, Should we have or, or is it just going to be a, a region? I mean, the thing about talking region by region is it becomes very difficult to make uh, policy, isn't? Doesn't it really?
3: Yeah. Um, so, in regard to the crops, I mean, that a whole multitude of things we need to be looking at species that have higher temperature thresholds. You know, that can still flower, develop seeds, set those seeds in higher temperatures, in drier conditions. Um, you know, plants with longer root systems, um, that can tap into, you know, more soil moisture and nutrients in the soil. And there's fascinating be- research being done with various research teams in different crops on how to, you know, grow and develop the best kind of crops for future climate scenarios. I think it's also very important that we look at what Indigenous people have eaten and grown and consumed over so many years of history in this country and really celebrate native Australian foods because this is such an untapped area um, and we really need to be looking at, okay, well, Kwondongs are a native species around here in Broken Hill. We should be celebrating that kind of food and um, looking at growing those native bush foods which are better suited to this climate, to this soil type, to this region
2: uh yes, but uh you know it's extremely difficult isn't it to change consumer tastes uh in the end uh, people most people want to eat what as adults what they grew up eating as kids uh, 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 you know it's a big big effort to change tastes
3: yeah absolutely and climate change is a it 's a cultural challenge we have to change. Um, what we're doing now, because what we're doing now is not working and it's severely damaging our planet. There's no debate in that. And so the conversation then has to flow on, okay, well, how do we change, you know, how we're interacting with the planet, what we're eating? Um, And we need smart people, you know, in marketing sectors, in design sectors, in storytelling, in filmmaking, in, um, in all these different places that help change people's minds and hearts and behaviours.
2: No, I I probably uh, agree with that. Um, I just wanted to move on just a fraction, probably outside of uh, the direct area of conversation, but I I guess water is a big thing from climate change. And as we've already discussed, it's not uh, a black and white issue, but Uh, in general, there seems to be less water to go around the place and therefore a focus on uh, a fight over it. And some people think we should have more dams and stuff like that and other people think that's not the best answer. Is there a general sort of consensus within the farming industry or the part of it that you talk to about how to manage the water resources that we have?
3: (laughs) Yeah. So the problem is that we have a rapidly growing population that is asking more and more of finite resources. And water is one of these very finite resources, especially here in Australia, especially in my region of Australia, which is the semi-arid slash arid zone. Um, And it becomes a very, you know, emotive issue too. How do we look after these precious water resources, the lakes, the river systems, how do we use those resources most wisely to produce nutritious food that actually nourishes body, that isn't wasted on, you know, discretionary foods or isn't wasted um, in tasks where it's not essential. There are great developments in many on many farms and in many different agricultural sectors to improve water use efficiency and to save water resources and that's fantastic and we need to continue research in these areas Um, you know investing in infrastructure to help farmers you know do this because yeah water is such a, a precious resource and we can't you know ignore that
2: No, that's right. Uh, Look, and probably getting towards the end, but I I guess I will come back to the politics uh, uh, just here at the end. And it's not always clear, these things, but quite obviously, very broadly, the rural sector is represented by the National Party. And I I, I need to put a uh, hands up here and say that, uh, as I've said a couple of times, my dad was a state member of the country party and national party uh for a few years but these days you know i mean it does seem to me that the on balance climate change is negatively impacting the farming sector but the national party seems to be uh, politically seems to be very like pro coal mining and uh and and anti-recognizing the impact of climate change but people still vote for them. The farmers still vote for them. I mean, how does that sort of play out in in your opinion?
3: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, especially this week and what we've seen in Australian politics yet again. Um, look, whichever you know, all all political parties need strong and ambitious climate policy because, as I mentioned previously, I mean that. Having a healthy natural world is the foundation for society, for the economy, for all of these things. And unfortunately, we have a few, a few people who are quite vocal in dismissing climate science, you know, in saying it is not as urgent and important as the scientists are actually saying it is. And that's incredibly dangerous because it's giving this illusion that we have time. It's giving an illusion that we don't actually need to transition as a society to something else. And we absolutely have to, and we will, but at what time will we do that? What losses will have, you know, have been made? What will we have sacrificed from the natural world? What species will have disappeared? So that's why we absolutely need people in political positions, in political leadership positions, setting, you know, stating that this is a really challenging time for us, that, you know, the the climate science is a very difficult thing for us to acknowledge and go, okay, yes, we, we are fundamentally damaging the world on which we all depend and we need to change what we're doing. But the good news is that we can change what we're doing. And in Australia, especially, we have so many opportunities that are just you know within our reach. And that's what we need to be hearing. That's what we need to be reminded of, that there are so many solutions out there that we could be grasping and reaping the benefits from. But unfortunately, we are being held back by you know, a few um, yeah people yep. who are not on board with this
2: that's That's for sure, and look, as i said we 're getting to but I mean it does uh, beg the question that if as my mum used to say to me, and she went on to be the mayor of Armadale, uh, that if you don't like the people running the show well you should you should either leave the show or 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 become one of those people yourself, so I guess the opportunity is to as if you think that way to change the national Party from within or to go outside of it, as some of the independents have done. Hmm. Uh, um, Maybe I should just, uh, I don't know if you've got any comment about that, but. Uh...
3: Yeah, I think that people should absolutely, you know, if, if you don't see, well, firstly, you should be communicating with representatives, with elected representatives and sort of saying that this is an issue that is important to me. Climate change is an issue that I care about and I will be basing my vote upon. And if you don't see the movement that you want to see, then yes, consider running for office yourself.
2: Uh, Anika Molesworth, that's probably a a good place to finish this conversation as any. Thanks very much for being part of Energy Insiders this week.
3: Thanks so much, David.
1: And that was Anika Molesworth from the Farmers from Climate Action. Um, Look, terrific interview, David. Um, As she says there at the end, so many solutions, so many opportunities um, we are being held back because people aren't just spreading that message. And that's the problem. We get nothing but negative messages from the people in power.
2: Well, I don't think, yes, I suppose the people in power, I mean, one of the other things you'll find if you look at the National Party, and this is not a certainly not a politics podcast, uh, but, uh, you know, the nationals around the country get about 6% of the total vote, which they uh, leverage into 12% of the seats in parliament and 20% of the coalition. And that's how they get to uh, drive a lot of policy. Uh, but even today, we saw an article by Warren Ench, and I think it's... Uh, pretty clear, uh, a liberal in, in North Queensland, uh, pointing out how, you know, Australia's got a long history of dodging its uh, and fudging its climate commitments and that land care uh, was used as a kind of uh, magic uh, sort of dust to, to fulfil our Kyoto commitments. And, that, and all the mess that that has got us into. And as I keep saying, I mean, agriculture is 250,000 people out of whatever it is, 10 or 12 million that are employed in Australia. So it's, it's only uh, five times bigger than the coal sector in terms of direct employment. But it is agriculture is a very important sector. Most Australians will identify uh, with the rural side of things. I grew up in the country. And I think it's a shame that farmers don't get more of an organised voice and don't get a bigger share of, of of what's going on, despite having a party that's notionally representing them in Parliament.
1: Well, notionally, and that's about the extent of it. It really has emerged as the Party of Fossil fuels, or even um, the Party of Coal. Look, um, David, we'll just have to see how that all um, emerges over the next few months. Um, in the meantime, there's been a bit of action. Um you know we've criticized the Conservative government a lot, but we also praise the New south Wales government um, as in particular for its energy policies and it's come up with what seems to me to be a pretty decent e v policy um, three thousand dollar rebate for the first twenty five thousand vehicles um waiving stamp duty and priority traffic in um, in um, priority uh, access to uh, traffic lanes at certain times. Uh, lots of investment in charging infrastructure to make sure that no one is more in the city is more than five kilometres away from a fast charger. And they expect this to translate into more than 50% uptake of EVs by 2030, which is roughly the federal labour policy taken to the election two years ago and rubbished by the federal government. Um, and they're putting the road tax in 27, 28. By that time, evs should be a well-established technology and probably people won't be complaining about that too much at that time it seems reasonably sensible david were you happy to see this
2: i'm certainly very happy to see the policy um it's going to take time to translate i think into ev uh, sales the uh, ev infrastructure charging network uh won't be installed for a little while and i think it's very important uh, that that gets done to get rid of range anxiety there is probably Australians drive further or longer distances on average than some, uh, some other countries. Uh, but I think the most important thing always is with these government policies, it's the signal they send. Uh, as, as we've remarked several times, there are a number of uh, um, electric uh, car companies that really don't think about Australia when they think about electric vehicles. Uh, Volkswagen is the first one to come to mind. Uh, and there's a lot of competition to get evs you know at the moment if australia's going to get them it 's going to have to have policies that are, that are supportive. Um, the threshold for getting the stamp duty, which probably uh, uh, waived, which is about another two thousand dollars for a seventy thousand dollar car so it 's a five thousand dollar saving, which is about uh, on a seven seventy thousand dollar car is is you know seven percent or something it's quite reasonably significant. Um, um, y- Absolutely, yes. I mean, I would have been happy if I'd gotten that. And when I got
1: mine two years ago, I think I probably would have saved about five or $6,000 from that, not to mention the $4,000. They- I would have saved $10,000 in all, David. But look, I shouldn't complain. <laughs>
2: uh, you shouldn't, but if you live in the country, you probably will. Um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, the Tesla Model 3 will get in under that threshold. And as far as I can see, the Hyundai Ionic 5, which I think is the most exciting new model on the market, and it's Kia Stable, mate. Uh, just about to enter the market, uh, will also probably in its medium versions get in under that threshold as well. So that, that that's all very exciting, and uh, we can look for steady growth. I live in Linfield, which is uh, you know a relatively affluent suburb. Let's be honest, and I see Teslas on the road every day, uh, every single day. Not I count them, you know, and at least one, but one or two. And it's not all just because they live around the neighbourhood. It's it's uh, the penetration and the will will is there. Um, and with some more policies we're going to see more EV growth. Now what does that mean for electricity consumption? It it will gradually increase it but only very slowly uh, and it will gradually uh, and slowly uh, reduce our oil import bill but it will take a long time. The existing car fleet takes forever to replace and even if EVs made up a huge share of new car sales it would still take a long time to make a significant difference. So uh, but we we'll go. Yes. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. It's
1: about 11 or 12 years, the average ownership of a car in Australia. And look, just in your charging point, um, that's absolutely true. Origin's just done a study on, um, uh, trialing, um, with charging um, with their customers and found that too many people were probably charging at peak time so that's got to be changed and that can be changed of course with sort of smart controls and things like that so that was interesting Hyundai you mentioned they've actually already said that this is going to encourage them to bring as many models as they possibly can VW who you also mentioned also sort of sounded a bit more enthusiastic but pointed out that as long as federally we um, don't do anything about fuel standards um, then um, it's still going to be a tough I ask so, well
2: giles what i can say about vw is they're not selling any electric cars in china or at the moment so they can probably ship a few of those that they were trying to sell there uh, <laughs> over here to australia uh, if the sales management's got any brains you'll be able to make that happen
1: we shall pass on that suggestion and um i'm doubt that they probably listen to this podcast anyway so hopefully they take that on board david
2: um um well, no, the next thing to talk about probably is the uh, disallowance of the uh, change to arena regulations that went on in federal parliament. This was a bit of a, uh, a bloody nose for Angus Taylor, uh, not the first probably, and not the last uh, that you'll you'll end up getting. Um, uh, for some reason or another, Pauline ha- Hanson wasn't in the Senate at the time. Probably uh, she'll get something in return, but in the end of it, <laughs> arena goes back to doing to doing what arena has done in the past. But it does mean on the flip side that arena won't get may not get the fresh funds that it was otherwise going to get. So we'll have to see how that plays plays out.
1: Well, I think you've neatly summed up. I'd just like to mention it's not the first time that the Senate has actually saved Arena. Um... Um, but um, yes, there's a big question mark over the funding that it will have and its ability to make sort of decisions about where that funding is going. Because um, as we've also seen that, um, Angus Taylor has sort of published, um, published, appointed, um, several of his best mates and former advisors to, um, that board. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there.
2: Charles, well, the... I just, uh, also wanted to talk a little tiny bit about electricity prices. Uh, as many of our listeners will be aware, uh, since the blow-up of Calide, they've absolutely gone through the uh, roof. Uh, pool prices have, in June have been about five times what they were last June. Well, well even,
1: just... even before that, even before Calide, I think been, um, there's been some funny business going on in New South Wales, quite clearly, or alleged by um, many small retailers, but go on.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that's right. And it's also the the coal and the gas prices have gone up like a rocket. Uh, and it's just made crystal clear to me that Matt Keane is the uh, politician that really gets it. Uh, because, you know, to get rid of these coal generators and actually to cut down on the market power, even of the gas generators, we need to get new capacity built with a wide variety of owners. And you need to get it built in front of these coal generators closing so that when, when things do happen like this, and it's very risky for everyone to have the system so dependent on only a few very old generators. It was different a few years ago when there were more of them, but there just aren't very many now, not very many owners around the place. And so we need to get more supply of all sorts into the system to increase security and reliability. And it's uh, schemes like the New South Wales scheme, quite frankly, that are going to get us there. And uh, I hope we see a few more of those schemes. And wouldn't it be great if the federal government would actually just get to the party and understand how important it is for every Australian to have uh, cheap, reliable electricity uh, and how much they're actually part of the problem and how coal-fired electricity is now... Increasingly, obviously, a source of high priced electricity, not a source of low priced electricity.
1: Well, that's been a message we've been trying to convey for quite a few years now, David. It doesn't seem to have sunk in. And in fact, if anything, they've um, dug further into the trenches saying that coal is the, um, is, is the only reason, um, the, the only path to um, sort of cheap and reliable energy, which of course is quite nonsense. As we saw this week with a couple of reports from both IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, and Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance, which specifically talked about the comparison between solar power and existing coal plants, particularly in places like China. So, um, you know, obviously there's still a lot of coal in China, but once you get the economics right, then um, there's going to be a tipping point at some time. Um, Yeah. um, God, I just lost my train of thought, David. um...
2: Having said that, Giles, I mean, coal-fired electricity is actually up uh, 20% more or less in China this year, which is like a 1,000 terawatt uh, hours. So it's like... uh, uh, um, uh, five times that uh, Australia's annual consumption has been added in 12 months. It's not good. Hey, just getting back to the prices, uh, what's the reason?
1: Why would generators want to? Is, is there any coincidence that they're doing this right now in the last month of the financial year? Does this sort of sort of set them up and sort of protect their, um, you know, the the, um, the regulatory, regulated part of their pricing for the next year or so? Is it just happens that they just see scarcity and they just taking advantage of it is that the last gas before five minute trading comes in or is it just like what they do when they can
2: well i think they what we're seeing is that um that they're, they're trying to make as much money while they can they're exercising the market power while they've got it i mean the consequence of these high prices if they persist uh is that it will actually incentivize new supply into the system that's it will actually work Um, And also they have to do it to some extent. The uh, coal price at Newcastle is about 190 Aussie dollars spot at the moment. So if you happen to, I'm not sure if any of them actually do buy spot coal, but if you were Vale's Point or Araring and having to to pay that, you probably need $50 a megawatt hour of electricity before you can even cover your coal cost, let alone all, all the other bits and pieces. You know, probably you need $70 a megawatt hour uh to to make it worth running and yet you have to run so i mean and it only took a year of low prices before these guys started taking capacity out of the system you know for maintenance or whatever reason whether a good or bad reason so why are they doing it right now it's winter wind and solar production is down the window to take advantage is relatively limited uh calide blowing up was a a kind of a gift uh to, to to everyone to do this the gas price is also high I mean, you know, we're all in business to make a dollar.
1: <laughs> I'd love to talk about your lawn, but we are running out of time. and There's two other things that I really want to talk about. I'm um, just mentioning your lawn just to sort of, because it's reasonably significant and the ongoing efforts to try and, um, um repair that wall um go back a decade ago and um, more than a decade ago they had to sort of divert the river because they want to get to the coal to the other side um of of the river and um now they are paying the price of that or part of the cost of that when the river floods um i did not want to talk about that but i just did The Australian Renewable Energy Hub, um, David, it was rejected by Susan Lee this week. It was a bit of a surprise, not least to the developers um, and to the WA government, which is right behind it. Um, there, There clearly are some environmental issues to be resolved there, but the manner and speed and the lack of consultation on this rejection took everyone by surprise.
2: Yes, well, I think you wrote that. On the other hand, Susan Lee professed to be surprised that the Great Barrier Reef was put on an endangered list, despite everyone telling her and her own department telling her that was going to happen for the past ten years. So, uh, it, look, it's 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 right and appropriate to be cynical about it. But since I don't think I know a, the first thing about uh, what the actual issues are in West Australia, where where that plan. Is proposed. I can't really comment any further. Mm, okay.
1: Um, I just want to touch before we go um, the sad passing this week of Chloe Munro. Um, she was a very special person. She was the first chair, the inaugural chair of the Clean Energy Regulator. Um, she played a um, a very important role in, in in very many sort of situations, both with the um, Energy Security Committee on the Australian Energy Market Operator, working with Alan Finkel um, as chairman of um, Impact Solar, um, but a variety of roles, and and someone who was really quite well loved. Uh, very intelligent, incredibly enthusiastic, very patient, um, and, um, a person who will be sorely missed.
2: No, I'd, uh, add my, uh, sympathies to her, uh, uh, loved ones in that regard as well. Uh, I think most people in the industry knew Chloe and of course she was, a uh, our guest, one of our first guests on this podcast and, uh, uh, that w- that was a great podcast that we did uh, then as well. So it, that's that's nothing more to be said. But that's a great show. No, it
1: is. Yes, and um, my condolences to her family and all to all who knew her, um, and particularly those who knew her well. David, on that rather sad note, um, let's bring it into this week's podcast. We'd like to thank um, thank you very much for your interview with Anika Molesworth. Um, I think next week we've got a special interview. Um, we we'll are not say now because you know these things might not um, work out, but um it should be very, very interesting. And I'd like to um, thank, thank all our, our listeners and thank our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. And um, look out also for the Solar Insiders podcast. Um, the Driven podcast and uh, the new podcast actually which is being hosted by Nigel Morris and it's very solar specific but there's a really great interview this week um, with Mike Swanston who many people will remember from Energex um, and a consumer advocate and um, it's a pretty interesting interview so I'd recommend that one as well David, thank you very much thanks to all our listeners once again and we'll talk again next week bye for now
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen